us, is this the lunch loop? If so, um, we wish to cancel. Um, we do not wish to belong to that or to pay this anymore. Thank you. Hey everybody, welcome to the Lung Loop Podcast, the podcast that uh, is pretty dope. No, it's the podcast where we talk about the intersection of markets, money, and life. And because it was a disappointing week this week in the market, I thought we'd talk about Elvis. I mean, isn't that what you do when the market sucks? You talk about Elvis? Last week, we got the news, uh, the tragic news, that Elvis's only child, Lisa Marie Presley, died at the age of 54. And if you read through some of the coverage about her death, there's two striking similarities between the way she died and her father died. First of all, they both died of cardiac arrest after years of alleged drug abuse. But what's more interesting is that for all intents and purposes, they both died broke. All right, gun to your head. Who's the biggest selling musical artist of all time? It's not an easy question to answer. And part of the problem has to do with the way that record sales have traditionally been counted in the United States. In a time before computers and real-time tracking, counting record sales was a manual and very fractured process. And to make matters even worse... Up until recently, it was common practice for record companies to try and hype up their artists by releasing inflated record sales figures, of which the media would just reprint without question, and then, of course, they became fact. Now, this problem gets exponentially worse when you consider worldwide record sales, because every sovereign country has their own proprietary way of recording and reporting record sales. And, of course, today, with digital downloads and streaming, it's almost impossible to tell how much an artist sells. But even with all that ambiguity, there is a Valhalla. There is a small group of artists that most observers would agree fall into the category of all-time best-selling artists. That group currently includes Pink Floyd. Rihanna is in that, that legendary group. Madonna, which I wouldn't have guessed, but Madonna, Queen, Elton John, Led Zeppelin, of course, Michael Jackson, and then back and forth between one and two, depending on which list you look at or which expert you talk to, it's always the Beatles and Elvis Presley. Elvis Presley, by most accounts, has sold over a billion records worldwide, making him by far one of the best-selling music artists of all time. He had 150 different albums and singles, that have been certified either gold, platinum, or multi-platinum by the RIAA, which is the Record Industry Association of America. Yet despite all that success, despite selling all those records, by the time of his death in 1977, Elvis Presley's estate was only worth $4.9 million. And against that stood tons of outstanding liabilities to creditors and the IRS. All right, so how did Elvis go from selling hundreds of millions of albums to being essentially broke? Well, a lot of it had to do with bad business deals and bad management. His manager, Colonel Tom Parker, who you would think is someone from the South with a name like Colonel Tom Parker, 
but he was actually Dutch. He was actually from Holland. And that's a whole nother podcast episode by itself. Anyway, Colonel Tom had originally negotiated pretty good royalty deals for Elvis back in 1957, but he had rarely increased the record royalty rates over the next 20 years. In addition, Parker got 50% of the royalties. And after all sorts of fees and agents and everything like this, basically Elvis would get 10% of the money from his record royalties. Now you'd think that with all the money that Elvis was paying to his manager and his agent and all these other people, he would have been protected from incredibly stupid business deals. But that was not the case. And in 1973, Elvis was a little tight on money. And so he directed Colonel Tom Parker to sell 700 of his master recordings. And Colonel Tom Parker said, sure, I'll sell them. But the package that Colonel Tom Parker, good old Colonel Tom Parker put together, didn't just include the rights to the 700 master recordings. It also included the future rights and royalties to those recordings, as well as the ability to use them to create compilation albums, which back in the day were real cash cows for artists. RCA, Elvis's record label, was more than happy to put a bid in on this catalog. So the RCA executives and Colonel Tom got together in the boardroom at RCA headquarters. And I'm sure the RCA guys were ready to just like hash out a really big deal. Like they're thinking, how much are we going to have to pay for this? Like 50 million, 100 million, 200 million? So they say to Colonel Tom Parker, all right, Colonel Tom Parker, how much do you want for this package? And he says, 5.4 million? I can only imagine what it was like being on the RCA side, having to physically restrain yourself from jumping, leaping over the table and signing as fast as you could on that contract. Well, after the 5.4 million was paid, Colonel Tom got his customary 50%, so take 2.7 out there. The IRS got 1.3 million, leaving Elvis with less than $1.5 million for what was arguably the most valuable package of recordings in the history of popular music. It was so valuable that the year that Elvis died, 1977, there was a spike in interest in his music. And in just that year, his estate missed out on between 10 and $15 million in royalties from sales of his album. All right, so Elvis was surrounded by bad managers. He was involved in bad deals. But you can't blame his financial woes completely on that because Elvis had some very expensive spending habits. And uh, that's why he had to sell the master recordings. For example, Elvis owned five different, very lavish estates, each with their own groundskeepers and staff and a huge nut that he had to take care of every month. He also had four airplanes. Who doesn't need four airplanes, right? And with those four airplanes, he had a standby set of pilots that were always on call. And of course, he had fleets and fleets of expensive rare automobiles, which he had to maintain. In addition to that, Elvis wasn't really tax savvy. And back in the day, this was when the marginal tax rate was 70%. And Elvis always paid the highest tax rate. He never took advantage of tax shelters, and he did things like donating $50,000 to a church at Christmas, but then not claiming it as a deduction. 
Now, the reason that Elvis could get away with this during his life was because if he ran out of money, it was simple. He'd just go get more. He was good for a million dollars per movie, even if the movie was crappy. He was good for $250,000 per recording session, and he could do a live concert and make a hundred grand. So as long as Elvis was alive and healthy, he didn't really have any problems. And that's the rub, because as Elvis got older, as he got more into drug addiction, he got less healthy. He wasn't able to do the movies. He wasn't able to record as much. He wasn't able to travel as much. And by the time he died and left his rather paltry estate, the executors faced an existential threat. No more Elvis, no more money. All right, so the job of managing Elvis's estate initially fell to Vernon Presley, Elvis's father. And he managed it for about two years until 1979, when he no longer could because he died. And that's when Priscilla Presley came into the picture. Priscilla was Elvis's ex-wife and the mother of Lisa Marie, who was Elvis's sole beneficiary. Unfortunately, by the time she got involved, the estate was in bad shape. Almost all of its assets had been depleted, and it really didn't look like a viable entity going forward. This was almost solely due to Vernon's really, really bad business decisions. Let me give you an example of just one of them. In the weeks and months after Elvis's death, tens of thousands of people from all around the world made the pilgrimage to Graceland to see the final resting place of the king. Now, this wasn't lost on Vernon. He saw what was happening, he paid attention, and he came up with an idea. I know. Let's shutter Graceland and spend half a million dollars a year in security to keep people off the property. And that's exactly what they did. That and other really bad decisions was why Elvis's estate was in the horrible financial situation it was. And to make matters worse, the federal government came in and recalculated the value of Elvis's estate, changing it from $4.9 million to $22.5 million, which sounds great, except that then came with a $10 million inheritance tax. All right, so if you were there in 1979 and you were a betting man or a betting woman, you would have been probably very smart to put your money on this outcome. Graceland's going away. Elvis's legacy and financial viability going forward is going to be minimal, if any at all. And that's because Priscilla Presley had no background whatsoever in business. She was a high school dropout and a child bride. And up until that point in her life, that's about all she had accomplished. But if you put that bet down, you would have been wrong. Because Priscilla was smart enough to, first of all, educate herself on ways to save the estate. And second of all, to surround herself with a very savvy team that knew how to operate a business. So Priscilla and her advisors decided to embark upon an audacious strategy. Instead of taking what was remaining in the estate, which is about 600,000 bucks, and giving it to the IRS, instead, they decided to invest it into Graceland and open it as a tourist attraction. In order to do this, they created an entity called Elvis Presley Enterprises, or EPE. And then they spent a year touring famous houses throughout the United States, like Hearst Castle, to see what they could glean from their operations and bring to Graceland. Not surprisingly, except maybe to the late Vernon Presley, Graceland was an immediate hit with the public, and it only took 38 days 
for Priscilla and her group to recoup all their investments. Now that they had some breathing room, they decided to embark on some other strategies, and they mapped out this comprehensive plan to get more money into the estate. First of all, they would try to salvage what they could from Elvis's music catalog. Second, they would do something about that ridiculous contract with Colonel Tom Parker, because even though Elvis was dead, Colonel Tom was still getting 50% of the revenue that his estate generated. Third, they would use some of the money to fight merchandisers who were capitalizing on Elvis's name and image without paying the estate. And fourth, they would expand into the merchandising business themselves. And as they began digging into the details of Elvis's estate, they discovered that they had an underutilized asset. Because Colonel Tom Parker was a greedy bastard, back in the day, when a songwriter wanted Elvis to sing one of their songs, he insisted that Elvis be given a partial songwriting credit. However, he was very careless about registering and obtaining royalties for those songs when they were published. EPE changed that. They began asserting those rights, which generated a healthy stream of income. Now, they couldn't do anything about the pre-1973 royalties, but they did go back to RCA and get another million dollars out of them for unpaid royalties. Then they went after Colonel Tom. A judge ad litem was assigned by the court to look at the estate and how it was being managed. And they came to the conclusion that Colonel Tom and his association with the estate was damaging it and damaging its viability. And because of that, EPE was able to negotiate a settlement in which Parker agreed to sever his ties with the estate forever. EPE then went on and hired lawyers and lobbyists to stake its claim for Elvis' likeness and name. And when a federal court knocked that down, they went to the state legislature in Tennessee and got them to pass a law specifically protecting Elvis' likeness. All right, so for this section of the podcast, I think I'm going to hold the mic just like Elvis. Now that they had set Elvis' estate up on solid financial footing, Priscilla Presley and her team decided, let's focus now on Graceland. And that was a genius move. In 1982, the year that Graceland opened, they saw 300,000 people visit. But by 1988, that had jumped to 500,000 people. Now, in 1993, Lisa Marie Presley got access to her trust, which had grown to a whopping $100 million, largely due to the work of Priscilla and the EPE team. And not wanting to upset the apple cart, Lisa Marie Presley said, hey, let's just leave everything exactly the way it is. That was also a good move because by 1998, 750,000 people a year were coming to Graceland and Elvis Presley Enterprise earned $35 million. In fact, the first year that dead Elvis out-earned live Elvis was 1989. In a 1999 Forbes article, they estimated based upon Graceland, based upon the royalty streams, based upon EPE, Lisa Marie Presley was worth between $225 million and $600 million. What a great story that would be if it ended right there. But unfortunately, that's not where it ended. The details as to how Lisa Marie Presley went from inheriting $100 million to dying essentially broke or a little bit murky. 
but they tend to coalesce around three character traits that she shared with her father. One is she got involved in drugs and alcohol. Number two, she had really bad spending habits. And most importantly, it was who she surrounded herself with. In 2003, Lisa Marie Presley decided to go with an outside advisor. And two years later, in 2005, he advised that she sell 85% of her holdings in EPE, the juggernaut that had resurrected her father's estate, that had given her that $100 million when she was 25 years old. And by all accounts, that was the beginning of the downfall. Um, I would like to repeat that want to be canceled from the Lund Loop, whatever you've got me on. Um, if you wish to call and explain what it is, uh, actually, uh, forget that. Well, that's it for this episode. If you got any questions, hit me up at Brian, B-R-I-A-N, at thelunloop.com. I'll see you next time. Bye.